Welcome to another episode of the Queen's Management School Good Business Podcast. My name is Laura Steele and I'm a lecturer in business and society within the school. The aim of the podcast is to go beyond the bottom line and examine the ethical, social and environmental responsibilities of businesses. The average person will spend approximately 90,000 hours at work over the course of their lifetime. In addition to money, our jobs can provide us with a sense of identity, pride and achievement. The relationships we form in the workplace can be meaningful and supportive. But on the other hand, research indicates that workers are reporting increasing levels of stress and job-related burnout. Add to this the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. COVID-19 presents a significant risk to physical health, but there are also substantial mental health implications too. These may stem from anxiety about contracting the illness ourselves or fears over vulnerable loved ones, caring responsibilities, loneliness and isolation, financial insecurity, or being forced to work in environments where we feel unsafe, to name just a few factors. How can organisations best support their staff and what can we as individuals do to protect our own mental health? To help me answer these questions, I'm delighted to be joined by experts on the issue who are involved in a new online psychoeducation platform, I Am Aware, that's been designed to help participants reduce stress and recognise signs and symptoms of depression and anxiety. Welcome to Tom McEnany, Head of Business Development and Support Services with AWARE, a leading charity delivering mental health and wellbeing programmes into communities, schools, colleges, universities and workplaces. Dr. John Moriarty, a lecturer in the School of Social Sciences, Education and Social Work at Queen's University, Belfast, and fellow of the Centre for Evidence and Social Innovation, whose research aims to improve people's well-being by developing a knowledge base and interventions to target causes of mental ill health at work, including burnout. Dr. Tricia Forbes, a postdoctoral research fellow at the I Am Aware project, whose research deals with mental health and suicide prevention. Dr. Heike Schroeder, a lecturer in Queen's Management School, whose research interests include the effects of demographic change and workforce aging on public policy, firm level human resource management, and the career outcomes of older workers. And last but not least, Michael Willis, a director at PwC who works in their Belfast office and who leads their wellbeing initiatives. PwC is one of the partner organisations who have volunteered their employees to help design and test out the I Am Aware programme. Thank you all for joining me in this virtual roundtable, our first recording of the podcast since the COVID-19 outbreak. Tom, if I can come to you first for some context, Aware is a very well-known charity within Northern Ireland, but for anybody who's unfamiliar with your work, how can you describe Aware's aim? We're the depression charity in Northern Ireland and the main aims is to promote positive mental health across the whole community from all age spectrum and we are involved in prevention, early intervention and recovery. So um, we, as you said earlier, we go to the schools, colleges, universities, workplaces, just promoting positive mental health and try to prevent mental ill health. And in addition to your senior management role within AWARE, you also have over three decades of experience as a mental health professional. How would you say the landscape has changed over that time? Well, I've seen many changes from the main focus nowadays is, is on home treatment and treating people at home, not having to go into hospital and prevent mental illness in the first place. So I've seen lots of um, developments in psychological therapies new ways of working, um, less less of the medical model and more of the psychosocial model. Um, so we've seen a lot more people being treated at home. I used to manage the crisis response home treatment service. So we were able to bring service into people's homes seven days a week, 24 seven. So that enabled people to stay in their own environment. And 95% of mental health is in the community. So um, big changes and medication and treatments have 
have also improved. So, um, and people are talking about mental health a lot more than they used to, and hopefully stigma has been reduced. So, the landscape has changed quite dramatically, which um, which is good to see. The old psychiatric hospitals now are becoming, or the asylums are becoming um, very few patients now within within those, and people are treated at general hospital sites and in their own home, which is great. It sounds like there's been a number of really positive changes over that period. Given the fact that we do spend so much of our time within work, how much of a role do you think that plays in terms of our mental health? Well, it plays a key role because it's a, it provides a structure, it gives you a purpose to get up for. It's connection with, with, with people. We're, we're social animals and uh, we like the connectiveness, we like to have a purpose, we like to have achievement. We, we need to earn money, we need to live. Uh, mental health is all about feeling good within yourself and um, so it's all about so a good workplace a good environment a uh, happy happy environment provides a, a happy workforce uh, and happy workforce is more productive less absenteeism less sickness more achievement uh, more teamwork so um, work is a good thing to keep um, us active and keep us motivated really it's good for mental health and Mike, would you agree with that? Is that something that you would recognise yourself in PwC? Yes, absolutely. Um, I do think, you know, having a, a focus and a purpose, we would describe it in PwC as having a purpose. Um, and that is so important, I think, to be able to drive motivation, you know, both in the individual, but as a team that you might work within, you know, to achieve you know, a sense of purpose, um, not just for your client projects, but also within the community, you know, and, and actually we believe one of the key ways for us to get engagement from our staff over and above the client work that we ask them to do is to be involved in the community projects that we do, um, you know, within Northern Ireland. It would help them have a sense of purpose that actually they're making an impact, you know, over and above, you know, that important client work that we ask them to do as well. Um, but I do think there is a responsibility on the employer um, to actually provide that care you know, for our individuals, I think, you know, it's really make every effort to understand the individuals that we have in our workplace and to really understand, you know, how we can care for them better. And that's one of the sort of five key values that we have, you know, at, at PwC is, is care um, and being able to put, I think, um, steps in place to ensure that we do really look after, you know, the people that we have working with us um, and we understand, you know, what's going to make them tick, I suppose, in terms of getting the most out of their career but also how we can best support them, as Tom mentioned, you know, in their working environment, um, so that we're actually, you know, helping them to get the most out of the opportunity that they have from working at, at PwC. That sounds wonderful. And I'd imagine, though, that the current situation with many of your staff being forced to work from home is presenting additional challenges for you in terms of connecting with them and making sure that they're receiving the appropriate support. Has that been the case? Absolutely. Um, and like every other organisation out there at the moment, um, you know, it hasn't been plain sailing in terms of trying to set ourselves up in a way in which we are providing all of the support you know, that we need to um, to all of our people. But I think, you know, some of the key things that we have done, you know, is make sure that, um, you know, we are absolutely signposting to all of the help that we have at hand. So we obviously have, you know, well-being support and guidance for all of our staff at, at PwC and, and one of the key things that we did at the very beginning of this crisis was to make sure that we were signposting to that help and support as early on as we could um, and I think then some of the reactive things that we have done since is making sure that we have 
started to apply some tips and tricks, you know, to the ways of working um, from home, you know, that, that really help each other. And one of the key things that we have really learned you know, over the course of the last eight weeks has been that everyone has their own struggles and, and challenges. And, 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 you know, you've got people that are maybe working from home in an apartment who are by themselves, isolated from their families. You've got, you know, working parents who are now having to, you know, look after children as well as try to find time to, to do their day job. And then actually you've got, you know, others who are maybe flat sharing with people that they've maybe never spent so much time with. Um, so how do we support that very broad spectrum of people with all of those challenges, you know, to make sure that we're giving them everything they need to, to do the job that we're asking them to do? Absolutely. Though hopefully, as Tom pointed out, people are more willing to speak up whenever they ex are experiencing issues regarding their mental health. Tom, can you tell us a little bit more about how the I Am Aware project came into being? I Am Aware project came about about three years ago, and um, we'd been involved with, with mostly with it was with AIB and the TSB banks, and it was basically they were developing their own iLearn platform, and they were putting lots of different modules on it. But uh, we had delivered Mood Matters or Adult program to some of their staff, and they wanted to see if we could develop that uh, Mood Matter module on their iLearn platform. So Marina McCulley, who's my 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 education colleague, excellent trainer, she worked with um, the IT and uh, AIB and TSB staff in developing the modules um, over a period of about eight months. And um, uh, once it was developed, within three weeks, there was uh, 252 people had signed up for it. And um, it wasn't made mandatory, but there was an option to make it mandatory as well. But they left it open. But 252, I think it was, that um, signed up. And the, the, um, the feedback from it was very extremely positive in the sense that just some comments they were saying, nice, simple program, need, need, need to know more about mental health, likely to be more understanding of mental health, more likely to use self-help techniques, and more open to helping others. So it was an interactive program. It was, there was pictures, there was video, and there was a simple steps, but there was also reflection on, as you went through uh, uh, screen to screen, it, it maybe reflect back, uh, do you understand exactly uh, what it was about? And it was all about looking at what is health, what is mental health, what is stress. But the underlying principle was CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which was key. That's key to all our programs. Uh, and putting that across in a very simple way. But due to the success of that, um, that was the, it's called ILEARN, but that's the um, TSB and AIB. It was cross-border as well, obviously, with AIB and TSB. But the issue was that that was their platform, and it was only to develop the module for them. We decided, and with their cooperation, was that we'd like to then develop IM similar, uh, the same uh, process, uh, same product, but take it out to a wider audience, to more businesses. So we thought the best way to do it was approach Queen's to see if we could um, get a funding stream um, in relation to develop this product, project more. Even though we developed it with TSB, the, uh, what we developed with them was just a baseline. What we wanted to do was develop it, enhance it, and have a different model, and then be able to add different modules to it. As we go along, the Mood Matters was only the introduction module. There's other modules then that we've now learned about that we want to add on as we're going along. So um, the feedback was excellent. Then we went to Queen's, got some funding, 
John and Tricia is there and Marina obviously part of it. Um, and we've had a good steering group as well set up. So then obviously what came up after that was the building blocks. And then we're lucky that we've been able to work with PwC and McAvoy Group about um, rolling it out and testing it. Because it's not an end product. The whole idea is to try it out, get feedback, build on the feedback. It's dynamic. It has to be dynamic. So um, continuously develop, continuous improvement is what we want. Um, so that's the history of it. Uh, we're delighted with what we're seeing at the minute. Uh, and we're looking forward to enhancing it, improving it as we go forward. But Marina was is excellent and working very well with Tricia uh, out in with PwC in the McElroy group, and of course John uh, with his expertise in the background there, the quiet man. <laughs> <laughs> and what would you say really sets this particular initiative apart from other ones that might be available? And um, John and Tricia might want to come in on this as well. Like, can I just mention just one wee bit? It's just that we, we, we were delivering all, all our programs face to face and a lot of businesses were saying to us it's very disruptive to staff and very disruptive to the business continuity. And we said, well, if we were trying to develop some e-learning modules, would they be interested in that? Because the world has moved on. There's a lot, we're doing a lot more Zoom and a lot more online stuff now as a result of COVID. 19. So um, we, a, lot of, a couple of businesses approached us, so we said, see if we can develop this. And we had the experience with, with TSB and, and the IB. So we said, there's a market out there for it. People want it. Let's try and set, create something, test it out, and bring it to the marketplace and, and take it from there. We looked at the difference with other ones. There's, there's other ones out there, but it's more you go online and there's a resource but this is a training module, so it's not, this is training as opposed to just going and looking at uh, resources. You can put resources online and on any platform, but this is, we wanted a training module, which then we can give people a certificate that they've actually been trained. Because when they go to face-to-face -face training with us, we give them a certificate of attendance and certificate that they've actually got it. So, so that's what makes it slightly different. So maybe long-winded, but hopefully that explains it a bit better. I think it really clearly sets out what additional benefits the I Am Aware program offers to participants, but also to businesses and other organisations who are keen to adopt it. John and Tom mentioned you there. Just to give us a little bit of background about your own experience, how did you become interested in mental health and well-being in the workplace? I suppose my uh, working life overlapped uh, with my student life for the latter part of my studies. Um, and I was involved in sort of social service work um, while I was while I was still studying and casting around for for dissertation topics. And um, so I actually happened upon really the uh, kind of a, a stream of literature around um, the importance of work in early life or in early adulthood. And um, because if you think about it, it's quite a profound transition from really for for the majority of people education is experienced within a fairly um, age homogenous context um, and any kind of adult in your sphere when you're a child has usually has some kind of hierarchical relationship with you so you enter then this age diverse context as a as a young adult when you go into work and the hierarchies aren't as clear and the expectations aren't as linear so you actually end up having to do a lot of work to kind of work out the implicit expectations of you from your 
uh, environment. And yeah, once I kind of got into that um, stream of, of, of literature about expectations and the importance of roles and the idea that we're all kind of playing out a role in our, in, in our daily uh, working lives, um, it, it became just a, a, an interest that's, that's, that's followed me the whole way, whole way since. Um, well, certainly, Tricia, you're no stranger to understanding the experiences of younger people. You've conducted research in suicide and mental health within that particular cohort. Do you think work or opportunities for decent, meaningful work has a role to play in terms of the well-being of younger people? Um, yes, definitely. So a lot of the research that I've conducted um, has been in some of the most deprived areas of Northern Ireland, um, where there are high levels of unemployment and low educational attainment. So I think um, generally the lack of aspirations, particularly um, around work and perhaps the, the hopes for the future being quite low, tend to impact on the younger generation. Um, and there's intergenerational cycles of unemployment often seen um, in these areas as well, which contribute to the overriding sense of hopelessness, which as we know is a big factor um, in suicidality. Um, so I think just apart from young people as well, though that sense of meaning um, derived from work is vitally important to individuals' mental health and well-being. Um, it's also well known from suicide research um, that there tends to be a rise in suicide among those um, post-retirement age, which is clearly indicative of people's need of a sense of purpose within their work. Um, so yes, generally, just to go back to your question, I think definitely meaningful work is a huge part to play in terms of well-being for young people um, and for the general population at large, for sure. And we're very lucky to have Heike on the call as well. And Heike, your research spans at times the other end of the age spectrum, dealing with the experiences of older employees. Do you think they face any particular challenges that might impact their mental health? I think in terms of transitions, as John and Trisha talked about transi transitions into adulthood, into working life, there are similar transitions for older workers out of work into retirement, which is providing them with an extra level of stress. And in particular, current uncertainties around how to finance life post-retirement. And I think especially in the UK, but also my native Germany and other countries I've studied, Japan, South Korea, there's an increasing trend towards, um, towards privatization of pension risks. So people are not sure anymore to what extent they can rely on the steady pension uh, flow post-retirement. And I suppose that creates a certain risk at the end of their working lives in knowing at what point they can afford to retire, if they can afford to retire at all, under what conditions they have to continue to work, especially if mental health issues come into play and they might be forced out of work due to health issues and health reasons that even increased as a risk factor. Yes, what really strikes me from actually listening to John, Trisha and Heike is this idea of transition points, if that's the right terminology, and how people might be particularly vulnerable at those different points in their life. Going back to what John said about those early years coming out of university and just trying to find um, your path, as Trisha highlighted, that particularly among people who are living um, in communities that are experiencing deprivation and poverty, that there's additional challenges. And Heike neatly points out the concerns around the people who are older and financing life 
beyond retirement and how they're going to find alternative sources of meaning. Mike, coming back to, to you, you obviously in your line of work are dealing with people across the age spectrum. Is this something that you've noticed that people have different needs in terms of their well-being at different points along their career? Absolutely. Um, and I think it's so important, you know, that organisations like PwC employers, you know, move, you know, with, I suppose, the research, you know, that is so helpfully being produced at the moment and recognising that, you know, we do have a very young workforce, um, especially at PwC, but actually the expectation of that young workforce and how that has changed over time um, really means that we as employers need to update how we support them. You know, it's no longer appropriate just to have first aiders in work, but we now must have mental health first aiders too. You know, which means that we're we're treating you know mental health you know with the same most importance as we do with our physical health. Um, and if we're not doing that, then we're not providing you know that care you know for the people in our workplace that is that is so vitally important. And actually, you know, hopefully people come along with us on a journey within PwC in, in their careers. And, and absolutely, there are times throughout anyone's career where they need you know certain different levels of support um, and we really encourage all of our employees to, to reach out and use all of the support that we have available to us and that's you know one of the key benefits and one of the key things that we've realized through you know the, the I am aware program um, and the training that's been made, made available online is that actually being able to transform some of that you know to an online platform you know with something you know like visual aids, you know, people, you know, an actual person speaking to you and, and getting, you know, those modules nicely set out and, and, and taking you through that is actually so important to giving, you know, some of our staff the tools, um, you know, to be able to equip themselves with, with coping with, you know, everyday life in, a, in quite a challenging work environment. Absolutely. And can I come back? Tom gave us a very interesting background of the project from the perspective of AWARE. John, can you tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in the project? At what point did that start? So as Tom mentioned, um, well, I would have been aware of Mood Matters. Um, I think I took a module of it actually uh, within Queen's. So um, I was really pleased when Tom made the approach to, uh, initially it was a meeting with myself, uh, my colleagues Paul Best and Karen Galway, um, and they, they were obviously a good way along um, with developing this concept of the online program. So it was a, it was a really interesting meeting um, because we were coming from a perspective where myself and Heike and a few of our colleagues in Ulster University and elsewhere would have been working really on, on sort of the policy side of things and trying to contextualize well-being in that complex organizational policy context um, that, we've, that we've been talking about. So we you know, looked at this proposition um, in that meeting um, and thought, well, there's certain things, certain things we can add. I mean, for one thing, um, you know, Mike has mentioned about signposting. I think one of the critical functions is the idea that it's not just a, a one-way information platform that through interacting with the I Am Aware platform, that we can actually, you know, the, the individual is informing us to an extent about their well-being and we can move towards a kind of a reactive, um, intera um, interactive platform, which is able to signpost people. Um, and then not just signpost to other well-being policies and resources and employee assistance, although all of that's really valuable, but also to 
kind of remind the individual that they are not just solely responsible for their own well-being, that there's a whole policy context, there's a whole set of supports in the organization for them, um, whether that be around the stage of life they're in, the family responsibilities they have, the pattern to which they work, the work trajectory that they're on, to try and get people sort of engaged with the supports that are there, that we all know people get emails about and people get notifications about, but, but trying to really highlight to, to people the, the, the facilities and the provisions that are there in their organization uh, that are, are relevant to them. So we could immediately see um, the, the, you know, the kinship between the agenda that AWARE have around delivering training to as many people as possible and educating as many as people, people as possible. Um, but also that um, we could, on, on the one hand, individualize it so it was quite a personalized experience for people, um, but also put it in that systemic context so that engaging with the program isn't just something that an individual trainee does, but that a whole organization does. Absolutely. And Tricia, what appealed to you about getting involved in the projects? Sorry. Um, so I have been working predominantly in the area of mental health and suicide research for about 10 years now. Um, and I suppose uh, I've been working on various projects, both within Queen's and within Ulster University. Um, so this is definitely where my research interests lie. Um, and while I haven't been involved in research specifically about mental health in the workplace before, um, I've been very interested in the area of vicarious trauma or secondary trauma among people working in the area of suicide prevention. So with the first project that I worked on, um, which was sponsored by the charity Contact, um, who used to run the Lifeline service in Northern Ireland, basically um, they were wanting me to look out for vicarious trauma in people where there was a youth suicide cluster ongoing in a community. Um, and it's quite uh, often like it's difficult to see that in other people, or it's easy to see it in other people, but it's quite difficult to see it in yourself. So I guess then I went down the route of looking at vicarious trauma in researchers who are working in the area of suicide prevention and research as well, because it was something that was affecting me personally. So I think I'm coming at it from two um, viewpoints, from a professional perspective as well as a, a personal perspective, really. And just I've spoken openly in the past as well about managing my own mental health while working as a suicide and uh, mental health researcher. So that's really what sparked my interest in the topic. And I was working um, previously with Karen Galway, one of the co-investigators on the project. And um, that's how I found out about the project. And I'm really passionate about being involved in it, obviously. Vicarious trauma is not a term that I had heard before, just given the topical uh, nature of some of the discussion today. Is that something that potentially could be an issue arising from people who are currently working at the front line during the coronavirus crisis, either in mental health capacity or in terms of uh, doctors, nurses and other people involved in caring for patients? Um, most definitely, yeah. It's really... Um... I'd say it would be very, very important uh, to look out for it. Basically, a basic way of talking about it is burnout, really. And I would say in terms of people on the front line who are working with coronavirus patients currently, it must be like I was watching the news last night about care homes and the impact that it's happened on care home workers. And definitely that would be something that would be prevalent at the minute. 
Yes, they might well have watched the same thing. There was one interview in particular with a young girl of 19 or a young woman of 19 who was on a regular basis sitting with people who um, were very ill and, and dying in some cases. And you can't imagine that anything in her previous um, training had prepared her for the trauma of, of having to deal with that. And, and you certainly fear for the long-term repercussions and whether they uh, will receive the appropriate level of support that they, that they need. And Heike, how did you become involved in the project? You're from the management school um, as opposed to um, as opposed to the same discipline as John and Tricia. How did you become involved? Yes, I try to link different uh, theoretical uh, and disciplinary perspectives. So even though my, my focus uh, of my research is based on management, I try to look at the um, public policy, social policy level and how that affects human resource management and how that in turn affects career transitions and trajectories of older workers in particular. And when I was doing my PhD research on older workers and how they were deciding on retirement transitions or transitions back into work post-retirement, uh, one of the main decisive factors for this decision-making process was mental health and burnout. Um, study I was conducting was mainly amongst secondary school teachers. Now, of course, when we talk about COVID-19 and frontline workers, that's a whole different story that people at the frontline right now are experiencing. But the teachers I talked to in the UK and Germany were all reporting, and it was a qualitative study as opposed to quantitative survey work. So I conducted interviews. Lots of teachers talked about work intensification, uh, generational difficulties with younger pupils, younger students. Uh, stress levels due to changes to the educational sector paired with um, uncertainties regarding their later life situations in terms of finances and financial availabilities. Um, so to that extent, a lot of people talked about burnout and stress and how that forced them out of work, but on the other hand, how that forced them to stay in work because they did not have the finances or opportunities to actually retire early. And that interplay between opportunities and threats and how organizations or schools in that context, local authorities were managing those stress levels was a very decisive factor of my, uh, my PhD research. And I conducted additional studies afterwards looking at um, those factors from an international perspective, looking at East Asia, and I saw many very similar trends. So it's not necessarily just us in Europe, but similar trends in Japan and South Korea, in Hong Kong. And so I thought it was very interesting, very important to look at how employers in particular can help all the older staff, but actually all staff across their life courses to cope with any stressors or mental health issues. Thank you. It really underlines the importance of being aware of people's different needs at various stages of both their life, but also their professional career. Mike, the word burnout has come up um, repeatedly during our conversation today. Is that something that within PwC that you are monitoring for, that you're taking actions to try and prevent people becoming burned out? Yeah, and it's a really emotive topic, actually, because it's not something you know you can actually measure, really. Um, and, and actually, again, being able to care for our staff enough so that we're supporting them in a way in which we're recognizing signs of burnout um, and as John mentioned you know giving you know people who look after you know some of our most junior staff the tools to recognize burnout um, you know giving them the training to 
that they maybe look out for those signs and, and and raise, you know, I suppose the the issue that someone might be going through burnout um, sooner rather than later. But actually, I think you know we we you know obviously we're an employer. We need people to deliver client work for us, and we talk about a challenge curve. You know, we're actually a certain level of challenge and stress. You know, for individuals, is quite good in terms of performance. You know, but there also then is a level on that challenge curve where it becomes detrimental, um, especially when you're on the downward trend. Um, and up then, you know, is whenever we start to recognise burnout in people. Um, and actually, it's it's really, you know, an, a, quite an interesting, I suppose, model when you look at the challenge curve, because if we can, you know, really start to understand the signs, you know, whenever people, you know, go, go beyond the peak and start going on the downward curve, you know, what are those signs? How do we pick up on them? How do we make people aware? And actually, a lot of it comes down to performance. Um, you know, how people are actually performing in their job. You know, are they turning up late to work? Are they looking a little bit more scruffy than usual? Are they becoming quiet? Are they not eating their lunch? Um, all those are key indicators to us that actually, you know, someone is starting to experience a little bit of burnout. Uh, um, and actually, it's something you only really start to understand, you know, through experience yourself. So, like Tricia, you know, as mentioned, you know, I lead our our uh, well-being committee in Northern Ireland, and again, it's through my own personal experience of actually you know, being in really, really challenging projects. I've been at PwC now in nearly 15 years, and you go through cycles in your career of you know, being stressed out, under pressure, to being actually quite comfortable with the work that you have. And you know, but it's me as a leader in our business being able to actually help others understand what burnout looks like. You know, bring tools on board like the I Am Aware um, suite of tools to give people the you know the ability to help others recognize the signs and, and, and draw upon that experience to make sure again that we're putting all of the things that we can in place to, to make sure that burnout you know we're being proactive around managing burnout as opposed to reactive and that's one of the, the, the things that we're as a well-being committee in Northern Ireland we're really big on being proactive um, and being able to put measures in place to actually help people before it gets to the stage where it's actually too late. Yes, one of the things that really struck me in, in what you said there that echoed what Tricia had brought um, brought to the conversation but how hard it can be to recognise the signs within ourselves within Patricia's, or in Tricia's case it was in relation to vicarious trauma but also in terms of burnout that we can perhaps see them in others but struggle to see them in ourselves and I think that's why programmes like I Am Where are so important because it might allow us to identify issues that we're having hopefully earlier than they might otherwise. John and Tricia, from a research perspective, can I ask you, why is it important to test and refine interventions like this and how do you go about it? There's been uh, a lot of development in the last 10 years um, around exactly how do we create um, complex programs. That's not to say they need to be uh, complicated for people to use them, but complex in the sense that the environments in which they're operating are complicated. So things that we just need to achieve are things like um, buy-in from the people who are going to use them, you know, a sense that people know that either they or people like them had an input into how this thing was designed and that it's not something that's being hoisted upon them. It's not something that's um, mandatory in the sense that they have to check, have to check the box. Um, so we were keen to sort of bring some of that complex intervention um, program development thinking uh, to this project so to really think about the design and see if was it you know was it going to achieve some of the objectives that, that Tom outlined around it being 
quite interactive, quite multimedia, um, being something that, that people would, would find pleasant and, and enjoyable to use or would, would recommend to a colleague, to make sure that it's relevant, to make sure that it like addresses the, you know, there, there really is no point, you know, creating something that's, you know, either, either so generic or so specific that no one person really feels that it's, um, that it addresses their their concerns at work. So you do have to listen to people and find out what concerns people have and what, what are the sources of their of their stressors. Um, so, I mean, it's been a really informative process doing that work and, and having those conversations with people um, working sort of on the, on the front line of these, these kind of diverse um, businesses and, and finding out, you know, the connectedness that they have to what we've been talking about, the the policy um, framework that that the organisations have 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 in place for them, uh, so that that that's what we thought was it was it was important to to sort of situate it in a way that was relevant to the the, the particular organisation and the, the local context, and also to use our 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 resources and our access to the research literature more broadly and find out how this fits into a global context and how this compares to other similar programs and other measures and Trisha and, and Heike and others have been have been uh, really to the fore of, of, of leading that work in, in terms of finding out what's going on around the world and and what efforts can 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 be built on. Heike whenever you came on board as John had highlighted you were able to give a bit of perspective about what is happening elsewhere could you tell us a little bit more about what you've uncovered through your research? I think in terms of uh, international trends, we can see lots of similarities in that people experience very much, very much mental health issues around the world. So there's not a specific national context or organizational context in which people do not experience mental health issues. I think what is decisive is that organizations are having a proactive approach. As Mike just pointed out, it's very important that employers are aware of the responsibility they've got for their staff members. And I think what's very important here is that organizations perceive themselves or perceive their employees as important stakeholders. So it's of course always very important to look at the financial bottom line for the survival of an organization, but in order for organizations to survive, they need their employees. And if your employees, and I think Tom also mentioned that earlier, employees are unhappy or not satisfied that is going to affect every business around the world so I think we did not necessarily find major differences across countries but we saw an effect in how organizations are supportive of their workforce or not supportive of their workforce and do you think that's becoming an issue that HR professionals are more aware of is there a greater recognition of the importance of mental health and well-being in the workforce? I think there is, but that always depends on to what extent organizations are able and willing to spend money on those initiatives. And I think as many people know, human resource management maybe still tends to be, and I like to call it a stepchild, so maybe it does not seem to be as important as other business functions perceived to be not as important. I think it's actually very important, or I tell my students it's the most important business function in organizations. But in times of um, business crises, such as now COVID-19, many organizations have to cut costs 
and HR tends to be an area where costs are cut first. I think we've seen that um, for the 2008 financial crisis, we've seen that uh, post 9-11, that many organizations that struggle have to look for ways to reduce costs. And I fear that many organizations cut the wrong costs, if you know what I mean. I think it's very important that especially now initiatives around well-being are maintained and even expanded in order to make sure employees stay healthy. It really sounds that potentially it could be a false economy to cut back in those areas which may save some money in the short term but potentially could have much longer repercussions. And I'd love it's an issue I'd like to come back to, but one question that I wanted to ask is whether you faced any barriers, so either Tom, John, Tricia, Mike, have you faced any barriers in terms of getting IMOware integrated into organisations? Well, something that I feel could um, hypothetically perhaps be a barrier is a certain amount of fear. Um, perhaps um, there's certain organisations who know that their working culture isn't conducive to the promotion of positive mental health and well-being, and they're afraid of in some way being exposed. So I would say that could be a potential barrier in the future. Um, but there's also a certain perception among maybe employees that it's tokenistic in some way. Um, if also, so that could be another potential barrier. Time pressures, obviously, um, you know, it might, it might need to be integrated into some kind of staff training and development program before um, employees would actually have the time to do such a thing. So those are just some of the barriers that came to mind. Can I just say, Laura, that we're involved with the Mental Health Charter and that's for businesses to really embrace mental health for the workforce and health and wellbeing. And there's over 150 companies signed up to that now in Northern Ireland. So um, what we find with them is that not more barriers, but if they embrace, most of them are already embracing mental health. And it's from top down and bottom up. It has to be ownership, not just tokenism, as, as Trisha said. If a company, see, if a staff member sees that it's, we're just doing this bit of training as a tokenism, they're not going to, they're not going to buy into it. Um, and obviously the program then has to be flexible. Um, which means that you know, not too long, they can do a little bit here, come back to it, all that type of thing. Um, we found, the, I didn't really see or hear too many barriers um, on the companies we spoke to, and I speak to a lot of them now as part of the Mental Health Charter. Um, in fact, they're looking forward to embracing it rather than um, putting any barriers up to it. And Mike, in terms of the decision to integrate I Am Aware within PwC, did you have any hesitations in relation to that? Absolutely not. Um, in fact, you know, leading wellbeing for, for PwC Northern Ireland, you know, I, I do get quite a lot of things across my desk, um, you know, in terms of you know, different initiatives, and, and it's hard to accept everything. But as soon as I saw this initiative, you know, you know John and Trisha can, can, I suppose, testament. It takes a little while to get signed up and get through the R&Q, but as soon as we saw it, it was something we absolutely wanted to be part of. Um, for me, we have to put the well-being of our people first. I've talked a little bit about the challenge curve already, you know, in terms of how our staff perform, but actually one of the key parts of that challenge curve is not just doing the work, it's being involved in something else outside of the work in the community. Um, and actually at, at PwC, um, we are trying to tackle you know, the, the suicide issue within Northern Ireland. 
And actually one of the key things that we do to help our people get involved is you know, certain charitable projects right across the province to tackle suicide um, and raise support around suicide prevention and awareness. And actually that's one of the key things that we think it gives people a purpose in the community um, and it, it, it helps, I suppose, drive that engagement um, and give people a sense of doing something that is making a real difference and an impact. And, and actually, if we didn't have all of those things to you know, give people that focus and purpose, um, then again, we're not giving them a platform to, to engage with the community. That therefore is going to have an impact on their own mental health, their well-being, their sense of, of doing good in the world. And therefore, they're not going to be performing you know, well for our business anyway. And, and whilst that might sound quite selfish from a, getting our, our, our staff to perform and, and, and do well in the business, but it's so important from our employee individual level to, to get them engaged, to get them engaged in the community, and just to be quite honest, do the right thing by our people. You know, and I think actually when it all boils down to it, you know, looking after our people's mental health and well-being is all just really about doing the right thing um, for our people. And actually, if you're not doing that, um, you know, then, then, then you're, you're really losing out because when you start engaging your people understand what really makes them tick, and uh, that's when you start to get them started. Then. It really sounds like, oh, sorry, Tom. No, I totally agree with Mike on that, because again, back to the early point, it's about giving people um, even coping strategies, building their own personal resilience, helping building community resilience as they go out and do the work out there. So fully support what Mike said there. It's a, look after your staff, you get the most out of them, you know, and know your staff, that's key. It really sounds like it's about the whole culture within organisations. Heike, is that something that you would see reflected in the literature? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think as long as there's a, like a line of communication open on both sides, people feel comfortable to talk to their line managers. They don't uh, expect any negative repercussions. If they are happy to have that conversation about any issues, then obviously line managers and HR can help. But again, they have to have, how do you say, an open ear for any problems and issues. So they have to be receptive, have to keep looking at people, as Mike pointed out, and see if there's anything changing, even if people don't address any issues uh, themselves, but look out for uh, any changes in people's behavior. So if um, there's no stigma around uh, talking about mental health, if there's no barrier in um, this kind of conversation and no potential negative repercussion on people's uh, promotion opportunities and career opportunities, then I think uh, there's a very, very good opportunity for organizations to actually implement that. Thank you. And John, without, um, without necessarily giving away any spoilers about your wider re results in relation to the study, have there been any early signs about its effectiveness? Um. So we, we are still at the phase where it's being rolled out and where there are um, people sitting probably today with the program and with the, um, you know, sort of the, the, the surveys that we're taking at the start um, to assess people's uh, sort of awareness of mental health. Um, and we're, we're still in the process of, of, of following up on that. Um, I suppose that in terms of when people were sitting with kind of earlier versions of the program, um, I think, as, as as Tom said, um, feedback has been has been really positive, and I think I think an important part of the message has been touched on by a few speakers, which is there's this really important idea of of conversations. Um, we are at a 
a risky moment, I suppose, in the history of of work and the evolution of work. Um, and this isn't a risk-free venture because when you put something online, when you put a facility online for people, and then they think internalize the idea that well, that's that's already there, so that's that's what the organization is offering me. So if I'm feeling such and such a way, well, it's partly my responsibility to go and you know engage with that portal or that platform and go and find out about that. And I tried doing that, but I couldn't get the whole way through it. And now I don't have time for it. So you get into a negative spiral. So I think a really key message within the I'm Aware platform that I think people have responded to is that this is not by any point, by any measure, an endpoint or a treatment. And that nothing is going to be more valuable than that conversation that you go and have with the relevant person, be that a mental health first aider. So somebody who's ready in, in a position to have that conversation or a line manager or somebody in human resources who can sort of impartially navigate you around uh, your options. So I think, I think the fact that almost upfront explicitly, the program kind of it says that it is an introduction to this area. And if it gives anything valuable, it's probably some vocabulary for people to use in those really important conversations. But like the idea that we can move, move all of these problems and all of these discussions like online overnight and that will remove the need um, for people to have sensitive conversations uh, with their employees and with their colleagues. That's, that's absolutely the opposite direction to where we're going. We're, we're, we're trying to enrich those, those conversations. Um, and I would hope um, the people that, that take away that message will probably be the people who benefit the most uh, from having engaged in the program. Absolutely. And can I ask really anybody who has an opinion on this, who's a part of the conversation today, what do you think some of the biggest challenges that need to be addressed if we're going to improve mental health and well-being in the workplace? Well, stigma is the obvious one. And you were asking earlier about particular barriers within, within this project. I mean, again, uh, like part of the allure of the online is that, you know, people who might not go to an in-person session uh information session on uh, be it any dimension of well-being be it mental health be it uh, menopause be it retirement um you know anything that a an organization is offering one of the deterring factors is that as soon as somebody thinks well if i'm seen at that session people will think i'm considering retirement or people will know about my personal circumstances so there's an allure that online creates um a sort of a veil, a bit of privacy. And for some people, it probably does achieve that. Um, but we probably need to be aware that a lot of people work in open plan offices. Uh, I'm aware it's a fairly recognizable program. It's very bright. It's very well stylized. It's very well designed. So people, you know, around, you know, people aren't achieving full privacy just by, by um, moving their, tr their, their training online. So there's a much deeper conversation needed around, around stigma um and i mean obviously just continuously you know talking about it and having mental health awareness week be um a national uh, event that, that we engage with um is, re is really important but i think you know sort of digging into why there is stigma around certain types of ill health or, or experience i think i think we just really need to be having that conversation uh, at a fairly sympathetic level as well. I mean, there are there are people who have kind of somewhat, you know, legitimate skepticism about uh, the amount and volume of information that comes through on psychological well-being and so on. Uh, so to really kind of take that up front um, 
is going to be key to to addressing that stigma. I think John, the stigma is a really interesting thing. Sorry to interrupt. I think the stigma piece is really interesting. I I see mental health as being a strength. You know, being aware of your mental health, understanding it, being able to in some ways impact your own mental health by understanding how you look after yourself. I think is actually more and more being seen in the workplace as a skill. Um, and actually, you know, if, if you're not aware of your mental health as part of your own development at PwC, you know, then actually no, that's not really seen as a good thing. We want people to be aware of their mental health. We want people to talk about it. We want people to engage around how they feel um, and how they improve how they feel. Um, and, and, and actually for me, I want to move the dial on what well-being is. You know, I think we need to move away from being what I said already, being reactive, being proactive. And we need to have much more support within the workplace that's visible. You know, so instead of having benefits that's available online, you know, for signposting to draw down on, I want to have physical things in the office that people can see that makes a difference, whether that's reflection pods, you know, whether that's space in the office that's good to go and have some quiet time, you know, whether it's somewhere to actually go and talk about how you feel with someone else. Those are the things that we need to be doing more proactively um, and, you know, just continuing to encourage people to talk about it and look after their mental health. And for me, you know, that's, you know, being able to push that on what well-being is, I think is, is, is really important. And do you think, Mike, that there's a business case in effect for supporting employee mental health and well-being? Do happier employees um, become more productive? Absolutely, 100%. Um, you know, if, 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 if our employees are not thinking first about their own mental health, then actually they're not putting themselves first. They're not putting, you know, I suppose, we, we, we talk about core values, you know, within yourself. What makes you tick? What makes you get out of bed? For me, I've got three core values. You know, one is family happiness, one is health, and one is relationships. If I'm not getting those three things throughout the course of the week, then ultimately I'm unhappy. Ultimately, I'm not performing in my job. And ultimately, you know, the quality of work starts to dip and, and I'm, not, I'm not doing well. But that's very personal to me, but it's very different to everyone else. So being able to help our people understand what their core values are, what's important to them and what makes them tick is a key part of actually, you know, making us successful as a business. John, Tricia, Heike, is there any evidence within the research to suggest that Mike's instinct in relation to happier workers being more productive is evidenced? Yes, absolutely. I think the management literature clearly shows that higher levels of uh, job satisfaction in employees leads to higher levels of productivity, to lower turnover, to lower sickness absence. Uh, so I think overall, um, a happy and healthy workforce is clearly beneficial from a financial perspective. So, and I think there's a very clear indication for a very good business case. However, you have to look at how that is all actually being implemented. Very often organizations have fantastic policies in place um, and uh, many are highlighted very, very nicely on websites. But in, in our research, when we looked at different organizations worldwide, we sometimes see a bit of a gap between the rhetoric on the website and the reality at the shop floor level which often depends on how um, line management is being trained on implementing, implementing any HR policies regarding mental health. 
how employees themselves perceive the importance of mental health. So I think overall, many organizations are a very, very good step ahead in, in designing policies, but making sure they are being implemented, I think is the biggest challenge from an organizational perspective in order to uh, capture this business case. That's really interesting. It actually echoes a lot of what we see within the literature around ethics, that if you have a, a really vast gap between your espoused values and your lived values within an organization, it can be incredibly problematic because people don't, um, people don't tend to respond to that kind of dissonance. John, would you agree with what Heike has said? Is that your experience as well? So I, I would, yeah, that there's a dividend um, at all levels for the organization to this kind of you know, investment in, in people's well-being. Um, what I would say is that some of the studies that I've looked at, um, and particularly in relation to the work Heike and I do around um, older adults in the workforce, sometimes um, it depends what you measure as an outcome. So sometimes short-term sick leave can actually increase be, um, following the introduction of um, particular particular policies, particular facilities, employee assistance, um, but short-term uh, sick leave can increase at the same time that long-term sick leave decreases. So sometimes you'll actually catch something a little bit earlier with an individual or with a group or a team um, where there's high levels of pressure. It might go back to what we were talking about earlier about developing a vocabulary where people are kind of able to sort of come and say if they're self-certifying that they're, that they're unwell or having a conversation with their, with their GP, they can kind of put words around what, they're, what they need time off for. But ultimately what costs organizations is long-term absence. And, and as Heike says, the expensive process of replacing people when there's, when there's high levels of turnover and they don't actually return from long-term sick leave. So I, for, for organizations thinking about this as an investment, I think it does need to be looked at as, as a long-run investment where there might be, there might be short-run costs and in, in the short run, people actually might decide, to, um, might decide that they are in need of, of, of time or of other, um, other provisions and accommodations and that can create um, some administrative issues. And, and I think that that is particularly um, scary for kind of small to medium sized enterprises who fear having to put in you know a complicated web of of, of policies or having to really up the the level of, of HR support that they that they have for their um, for their employees but again it 's making that case that the the long term dividend is is real and that you will end up as as you say with with happier and and, and more more well staff um, yeah as well as just the the kind of the, the, the moral case that there is doing it. I was going to say, Laura, you know, in response to what Heike, Heike has said there with regards to, you know, the corporate social responsibility, you're setting out nicely on your website, you know, what does you do around well-being and how you care for your people versus what actually happens in reality. I think, um, I, I think it's really important to call that out. Um, you know, PwC is a large organization and I do think, you know, it's, it's very, Astute to be able to say, well, actually, it's down to the individual line manager. You know, say something like myself, who, you know, I'm a mental health first aider. I'm very aware I can make an impact and make a change. But actually, that's not. There's not lots of me's right across PwC worldwide. Um, you know, so we're very much also dependent on you know being able to get access to the training. Like I am aware, 
being able to get access to you know mental health first aid programs, being have access to you know Queen's University who helped push us in the right direction and tell us you know the things that we should be doing to to again push the dial on on how we actually you know support our staff around mental health and wellbeing. Um, so it's it's by, by no means perfect, but I think we also do rely on the likes of a Queen's University or or Aware to, to help us to help guide us and and give us you know an industry the I suppose the tools um, and the things that we need to help you know make the workplace a better place for, for all of our all of our employees. It really underlines the need for a multi-stakeholder approach and to benefit from the expertise of people like yourself, Mike, in business, Tom, who both has a clinical experience but also working in a charity, and then John, Tricia, and Heike in terms of offering that robust academic perspective. But in the circumstances, I would be remiss if I didn't ask if there were any tips you could offer us in terms of supporting our well-being at what is, for many people, a really difficult time. So, Tom, can I come to you first, given your clinical experience and the work you're currently involved in? Is there a, a tip that you could give us in terms of protecting our own mental health at this time? Well, the simple message we always give is talk. don't suffer in silence. Talk to somebody about it. But also, we know we're better five fruit and veg, five a day fruit and veg. We have our take five now, which is the, the evidence base for looking after your mental health. So get out, have exercise, connect with your family and friends, even by Skype, even though you're in lockdown. Um, give you your time and uh, um, learn something new. And be mindful. We, we're doing a lot of mindfulness now. And that's actually taking time out. Declutter. It helps to declutter your head. Because we all the thoughts are spinning around our heads every day. But if you're locked in your house at the minute due to COVID, you're more isolated. There's more anxiety. We've seen that already. So the issue is how do you declutter that? How do you relax? Exercise is great, uh, and also a bit of mindful um, mindfulness, just just to, to relax. Yeah, but talk about it. Don't suffer in silence. And I believe you've got some excellent resources on the Aware website as well, which I can link to in the show notes. Tricia, you've obviously um, worked in some very challenging environments. You've had to support people going through difficult times. What would your recommendation be in terms of protecting our mental health at the moment? Yeah, certainly. <clears throat> I just think of those people who are supported um, by mental health provision under normal circumstances. And I know um, basically that there's quite a lot of that isn't on hand at the minute and people's appointments are being cancelled unless it's kind of an emergency type scenario. Um, so I would say just try to maintain retain as much as possible um, just I think that's been really helpful just from a personal perspective of trying to like have some sense of this is still a weekend this is a weekday <laughs> even simple things like that so um, yeah just maintain and retain maintain and balance in your life just because we're working from home doesn't mean we have to work constantly um, so yeah retain I would say is a big big tip from me and it's something that can so easily slip away. I'm sure many of us over the last number of months have had that period where we think, what day of the week is, is this? Is this a Wednesday? Is it a Friday? And so I think routine is something that can slip away. Mike, you're a mental health first theater. What would be your top tip in terms of protecting our mental health at the moment? I think in the workplace, um, staying connected is the most important thing. Um, so again, from a work environment, you know, having daily huddles with your team, having regular coffee breaks where actually you're not on your own but you're having maybe a virtual coffee break with a friend and work and you talk, the only thing you might talk about is anything other than work 
Um, again, you can do the same thing with lunch. Um, but also then, you know, staying connected also means, you know, looking out for those who aren't connecting. So, you know, you know, making sure that we're recognizing others who maybe have gone a little bit quiet, um, arranging one-to-one so that you've got coverage across the whole team. Um, you know, so there's no sort of gaps, so to speak, in terms of people are, who are, who are, who are forgetting about or we're not looking after. Um, but very, you know, think, you know, just having your camera on in Zoom, I think is good because being able to see people um, and concentrating on that meeting, so not multitasking, just concentrating on what's in front of you, I think is, uh, is really important. It's just seeing those friendly faces, even if we're still separated from each other. Heike, do you have any suggestions that um, that we could take on board and attempt to, to make sure that our mental health stays buoyant during this time? Uh, well, I would say reducing our own expectations about our perfectionism. Now, I'm a, a working mom, as many of us are working parents and having toddlers, and my toddler went outside to play some football so I could focus on our conference call today. Uh, but trying to not expect too much of what of, of, of every task that I do, if that makes any sense. Normally I'm a perfectionist and I won't be able to keep that up uh, under current circumstances and trying to relax about how the kitchen looks like, how the house looks like, certainly helps in maintaining that balance and that, yeah, mental health, I suppose. I think that's something that a lot of people need to hear at the moment, particularly those who do have very high standards, unrelenting standards, that sometimes we need to just say to ourselves, actually, it's all right, good enough, um, is absolutely fine at the moment. Last but not least, John, um, can I ask you for any tips or guidance that you can offer? Well, you're pretty... Um, pretty excellent list of, of tips so far. I suppose the only ones I'd add would be sort of to think about the, the two sides of the moment we're in technologically in terms of input and news and um, social media noise coming at us. This is a can be a particularly stressful moment to try and navigate the internet and each event creates its own sort of feedback loop and Really, COVID-19 is such a slow moving story in some ways that I think kind of being fairly disciplined about our news intake and our exposure to, um, to, to this story and sort of accepting our own, you know, personal limitations that, you know, we are all, we are all actually doing something positive by following guidelines and by continuing to do what we can from um, the locations that we're in. Um, rather than fe feeling like we have to to follow this beat by beat because that that definitely is gonna gonna exhaust people and then thinking about the other side of technology I suppose would would feed into a wider point which is like this is a good moment to be grateful for things that you do have in your life I, I am actually quite grateful that we um, live in a, a, a in a in a time when you know we can see each other remotely and we live in this kind of almost what would for our parents have been futuristic universe uh, in which we can maintain those connections and then offline um there are a lot of things that i'm that i'm quite grateful for um in my own life and uh, in a sense because distance has become less of a factor in maintaining friendships i found myself actually reconnecting over this period with with some um some friendships and some relationships that uh, that might have um that i might not have felt um as as in touch with on a day-to-day -day basis when we're kind of confined by our our physical route to work and all that so um yeah just just, just continuing to be sort of as tom said mindful and aware and 
and, and grateful for the things that we do have and try and build from those strengths. Yes, absolutely. The double-edged sword of technology, that it can be a fantastic tool for connection, but that we really need to be careful about the content that we're consuming. I certainly had the experience where you wonder later on in the day why you're feeling quite so depressed or anxious, and you realize that you've perhaps spent an hour or two reading some really negative stuff on the internet, or you're constantly getting notifications on your phone. So we need to be careful about our consumption. So some really fantastic advice there that I'll make sure to put in the show notes. Every Everything from taking five minutes and getting outside fresh air where we can, limiting our expectations, checking in with others and using technology wisely. I think all of those are excellent tips that we can take on board. Finally, at the end of the podcast, I ask each guest the same question. What do you think it means to be a good business today, either generally or from the perspective of promoting good health and well-being? If I can come back to you first, Tom, and you gave us the first response in the last round of, of questions, what do you think it takes to be a good business today? I think a good business is, is a business that embraces the mental health and well-being of all its workforce and has it as a priority as with any other aspect of the business. That would be my key one. And Tricia, um, in terms of your view of what makes a good business, what sets an exemplary business apart? Yeah, um, I would sort of echo Tom's words, I think. Um, I, you know, have been in a business, which is Queen's University, for quite a long time now, and as a student and then as a researcher. And moving from contract to contract as a researcher, you know, I feel like I've been in quite a lot of different departments with different line managers. And I think the times when it's felt most like a positive business is whenever I feel like an individual and I feel as though I am cared for. And that's really what makes a good business to make each individual within the workforce feel like that. Yes, absolutely. Recognising people as individuals, which is a theme that has come up repeatedly today. Mike, clearly, both yourself and PwC strive to be a good business. What is at the core of that? What are the core values that you aim to live by? I mentioned which is, which is care, and I think along with that comes kindness. You know, and being kind to people. You know, a little bit like what John has already said. You know, and you know, being kind to people is one of the the most important things that we can do. But I think acting with integrity, um, working together and, and making a difference in our community um, are all you know, key things for us in terms of you know, you know, being the best business that we can. Yes, care and kindness, I think, is something that we really are needing large quantities of at the moment. Heike, do you have any thoughts on what makes a good business? I think Heike is oh, temporarily and the audio has dropped out there. What I'll do is I'll yeah. go ahead. Oh, I can hear you now. Thank you. Heike. Oh, sorry, sorry, my sorry, my internet was off, so I had to reconnect, and I missed what everyone else said. But what makes a good business, I think, is a listening business and an interactive business where people watch out for one another and do not necessarily perceive that mental health or any health issues are a weakness, which might impact on people's career opportunities later on. So being honest and being proactive about mental health. I think is what makes a good business in this context. Yes, having that conversation, and although you missed that part of the conversation, what you said really dovetails beautifully with what Tom, Tricia, and Mike have added. Finally, John, um, what do you think makes a good business? Uh, I think a good business. I think a good business um, takes its 
mission in the round. Obviously, businesses want to make money. They not need to make money to survive and to function. But that that is to take that as um, not as its literal mission, but as representative of the value that they can add. So the reason people want to pay for a service is because it adds value to their lives. So to connect more to the value of the service that you're offering. Um, and again, I think COVID-19 has like awoken us to the value that a lot of people do in their day-to-day lives, whether it's um, going into um, a hospital and treating somebody or whether it's uh, getting on a bike and delivering food to somebody, um, whether it's um, maintaining our, our, our key services, whether it's um, helping keep our environment, keep our, keep our city clean, keep it, keep it livable in. If we, if as organizations, we can all, you know, in Queens, we're, 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 we're desperately trying to maintain our, um, you know, our service with our students and, and keep the, that core um, enterprise that we do, which is, which is, which is learning and keep, keep that on the tracks because we recognize that students, you know, have, uh, you know, have, you know, have their, their lives ahead of, ahead of them and have, you know, a lot to take out of learning from, um, from us and from this from this moment so yeah i think remembering that that money is just ultimately a metaphor for value and that we're all trying to just add value to the world which really connects back in many respects to what's been said previously and um, by mike by trisha by heike and by tom about purpose and about our sense of purpose and how much that impacts on our mental health and our physical well-being so Tom, Mike, John, Trisha, Heike, thank you for agreeing to take part today and thank you to the audience for listening. For more information on the Good Business Podcast or our other work related to ethics, social responsibility and sustainability, you can follow us on Twitter at QUBethics or email ERF at QUB.ac.uk. Thank you. Mm-hmm.